Hey everybody, welcome back. In today's episode of Raising Unicorns, if something can go wrong in the production of a video ad, it will go wrong. But here are some good practices to keep yourself as sane as possible. Successful businesses come in all different shapes, sizes, and animals. On the Raising Unicorns podcast by Harm Brothers, we share the video marketing gold that has helped companies of all shapes and sizes grow by hundreds of thousands to hundreds of millions of dollars in sales. So if you've got a business and you're ready to use video to scale it, this episode was crafted for you. All right, everybody, welcome back. I have a very special guest with me today, someone I've worked with for a very long time, side by side on a ton of projects. It's the one, the only... Joshua Stoffrin. Oh, thanks for having me. It's about time. I know. It's been a while. Have you been on the podcast before? No. Man, Josh, how many years have you been at Harmon Brothers? In-house, a little over five. But if you count the time I was freelancing before that, it's been probably close to six now. That's crazy. Six years. Anyway, so Josh has basically been our lead producer full-time, like Josh has said, for about five years. In any major Harmon Brothers campaign over the last half a decade that you've seen, Josh was either probably the producer or came in clutch and helped with the production. <laughs> Anytime that someone else produces, Josh comes in at the very last second and helps put out fires and helps make the whole thing work. For most of you who don't know this, in the advertising world, they usually don't do the production. They farm out production to some production house, typically. There's usually a creative director who is in charge of that and goes on site and works with the client with the production house to get the commercial made, which is typically how it works. But with Harm Brothers, we've always been a weird anomaly where we've had writing, directing, and producing, and post-production all under one roof, which is really great for some things, presents its own challenges and others. Because of that, Josh has been a big part of our operation so, Josh, can you kind of talk to us a little bit, just from like a very basic level, walk us through what is pre-production and what is post-production and like, what do you do in your job in those two roles to like make sure everything is working for our ads? Quick high-level pre-production. It involves everything from finding the right writers and the right team to come up with a concept and a script. And once that script is done, it's literally taking that and running with everything. At that point, it's a blank canvas. I mean, honestly, it's, hey, we need a director tied to this. We need actors. We need locations. We need permits. We need contracts. We need everything. Everything. It's basically just getting a, a script and making it all happen. Yeah. At that point, it's just a script and there's nothing else attached to it. So let me ask you this, Josh, just for people, give us like one or two of the most esoteric or like weirdest things you've ever had to source for one of our productions. A bear is up there. <laughs> Kodiak. Animals. There's a lot of animals we tend to work with from the rat that we had to make a custom t-shirt for. <laughs> yeah. Forgot about t-shirt rat. To definitely Kodiak the bear to... You produced Covenant Eyes. I did do Covenant Eyes. That was a... We had to find a military depot to film in. We did. Well, I guess it wasn't specifically a military depot, but we had to find a place that had like huge machinery, 40-foot tall ceilings in an old industrialist building. During winter and keeping that warm was <laughs> yeah. a challenge. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember it being warm. I just remember being cold. <laughs> did we have heaters? We I had heaters. Oh, that's right. I, yeah. I think the roundies brought heaters. Josh went and located a, it's a military depot out here in Utah in Dugway. I think they said it was built in like World War II to manufacture like tanks or was it, I can't, was it tanks or airplanes? I can't remember. It tanks. I think it was tanks, but it was crazy. It was like this huge production line to build tanks. It was this crazy long building, had massive concrete pillars. It was wild. Is there anything else you can think of another like, how the crap am I going to find this? Oh, all the time. <laughs> when we had wing feather, if we didn't have something like Evermore, Evermore close by, finding something like that is tough to do to find a medieval yeah. 
castle, village, whatever it might be. For context, that one was a crowdfunding video for a children's fantasy book series that was going on Angel as a crowdfunding campaign. And they wanted it to be in a fantasy realm, which I don't know if you guys know this, just that here's a pro tip. If you're going to build a bunch of sets that are fantasy based and like time period based, it's not cheap. It's super expensive. And they're just usually not laying around. But like luckily enough, there's this random theme park here in Utah that's called Evermore, which is basically like a giant, I don't want to say LARPing park, but it kind of feels like a LARPing park where you go and you're like, people are like role playing. It's the weirdest place. It actually worked perfectly for this wing feather campaign that Josh is talking about. And Josh is a big relationship guy. So he knows a lot of people. He's networked forever. And so he was able to get into the park and film there. It was a one day shoot, right? It was. We basically had the whole park to ourselves, which is amazing. And we got a ton of footage. It looked like it should have been a half million dollar campaign. And it was a fraction of that. So So yeah, locations are definitely tough. But then if you look at trying to turn a spokesperson into a tree. <laughs> oh, yeah. or, you know, or <laughs> that was, uh, yeah, that was a tough one. Or an actor into a mermaid, which we did on the third. Which one was that? Third squatty potty, Jeff Blake. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it was a merman. It's yeah. like this. Uh, I'm not going to say anything bad about Jeff. No, Jeff's great. <laughs> Jeff's great. He does a little heftier of a guy. Put him in a mermaid costume. And he looks so freaking <laughs> ridiculous. If everybody saw the unfiltered versions of the scripts or like some of the versions that got shelved, you'd think all of our writers go do like a batch of LSD before <laughs> they start writing. So maybe talk through like, what's the process for you like when you're in pre-production and you come across a challenge where you're like, I don't have an immediate contact to find someone to do a merman costume. Like, what do you do? I'm luckily enough in this point in my career where if I don't have a direct contact, I have a contact who has a contact who might have a contact. Yeah. So that's why networking is as important as it is in producing. Because there's been a lot of times where like on the one we did with Sean's and Brennan where the snake and we needed all the animals. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was for Riot in the Dance. And those are animals that we just could not get locally. So it was calling one animal person that we work with a lot and her putting in contact with another one who put us in contact with another one until we eventually found out what we needed. Yeah, chasing leads. Chasing leads. Mm -hmm. It's easier to chase those if you at least have a jumping off point, which is where a lot of those those networks and connections come from. That's why Josh is such a powerful producer at Harm Brothers is because he has those contacts. He has those networks he's built up. We've thrown some pretty big stuff at it. Like you said, like bears, animals. We had to build an airplane set. <laughs> that was <laughs> a nightmare. A hunt. Was it New Mexico? Arizona. There's an airplane graveyard in Arizona. Here's another hot production tip. If you can't find one locally, because we have one of the only ones now in Utah, but there was like three at one point in time that was that were around, but they're just expensive to store and they're big. But if you have to construct one, there's an airplane junkyard in Arizona and it's exactly what it sounds like where there's just a ton of airplane parts that have just been stripped out of aircraft and you can buy them for, I would probably say, relatively cheap. A row of seats was only like, I think like 150 yeah, it was bucks. Really it was expensive. like wildly affordable. But that's just like Josh's superpower of just being able to like figure out and chase something down and go find it. Okay, so talk us through a little bit about the most important things about pre-production. If yeah. Going back to like more of an advertising mindset. Mm-hmm. So obviously in advertising, we have fixed budgets that are going to be specifically like set out by the client or by the company you're working for around a certain campaign. What's the most important thing that you've seen to like basically saving a budget or keeping a budget in check when you're in pre-production? There's a couple. I mean, one, there's so many line items that go into a production from talent to crew to writers to post-production that if you let every single one just go over a little before you know, it, you're thousands and tens of thousands over. So it's scrutinizing every line item. Yeah. Making sure that you need absolutely everything that is included in that line item from, hey, is this a crew that we need? Is this crew going to benefit us 
as much as possible or is there a cheaper route to go? Because it can snowball quickly out of control. And once that happens, it's hard to rein it back. To rein it back, exactly. So that's a big one. Putting money where money needs to be put is very important. As you go through production and commercial specifically, there are elements and times in which money should be spent and which it shouldn't. As you know, we are well known for our big elaborate hooks. They grab people's attention, they keep people watching, and spending money there is something that I'm completely fine with and I feel it's justified. It's when we have a joke or a concept that happens maybe half or three-fourths of the way into the spot that's just as big, if not bigger than the hook. (laughs) And my creative director or director wants to spend a third of the budget on there. That's when we have an issue and I have to come back and say, no, either we need to revisit this creative joke. Maybe there's a way we can tweak it or maybe we just need to move it up closer or just get rid of it altogether. But it's a combination of just knowing where's the best place to put your money to get the best return on your value. So for sure. And that's something Josh has done really, really well over the years. When there's something that comes up, it's like, well, this thing's going to cost like 40 grand. Do you think it's worth 40 grand, Shane? And I'm like, Josh, you bring up a really good point. (laughs) The thing that's nice about that is then if you have a good producer when you're making a commercial, you can go back and be like, okay, but here's what I wanted to get out of this bit. Or here's what I wanted to communicate in a clear way. Then you and the producer can go back and brainstorm. Okay, can we do this in a way that's not as expensive or might not be as production heavy or we can do it just as effectively but like much more simple of a demonstration or maybe it's not having one of our 3D artists build out an elaborate thing. Maybe we could do something practical. It's not always the case but more often than not I feel like when we find those creative solutions it only heightens that joke or that concept that we originally had. It doesn't take away from it at all. It seems like we just get smarter and when we get smarter, it dials it in better. It's more... It's more focused. It's more focused, yeah. I would say don't push back against budgets like when you, if you have a producer and you're like, they're like, this is too much because then it really puts your back up against the wall and like you really have to decide and think, what is it that's so important about this thing and how do I focus it on that important thing? Some of the messaging is an analogy to help explain how the product works. Is it a product demonstration? What is it that I don't want to lose? And usually it ends up cutting out some of the fluff and really focusing on the more impactful moment that you're trying to achieve and you're trying to communicate to the audience, which is a huge thing. We've had ones where it's gone over, you know, over budget. We've had ones that go under budget less often. Trying to always outdo ourselves is kind of hard. When I look at the ones that were on budget and we had to work really, really hard to find creative solutions, I am always way more happy with the end result versus when we like spend a ton of money on something that actually had pretty diminishing returns. Then I'm just pissed. Then I'm like, what could we use that extra five? K for on some other hook or some other element that felt like it was lacking because we had to cut corners somewhere else and we spent our money in a wrong place. There's nothing more that boils my blood personally than looking at my work and then being like, ah, didn't do it right. We've gotten a lot better at this, but there have been situations where not only do we spend that money to create, whether it's a hook or another section in the spot, but it's one that we're very adamant that we need and we put a lot of money into it. Yeah. And then because of testing or the way that the edit cuts together, it mm-hmm. just doesn't see the light of day at all. Oh, that's the worst. And when that, it, It's yeah. completely shelved. Yeah. Like that's the worst when it's a total turd mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, this didn't work. And then you're that's like... half our budget. <sighs> Yeah, I don't know if it's ever been half our budget. But. That opening scene for Vivint was a big one. <laughs> Let's not talk about Vivint. It was a learning moment, guys. It was a learning moment. We have a lot of really good hits at Harm Brothers that have crushed it out of the park. More often than not, luckily enough for our agency. And Vivint was one that the hook specifically that Josh is talking to is one where we just totally missed. I mean, it was a huge hook where it was like massively expensive. We had like these old Model T Ford cars on a freaking process trailer, which if you guys don't know what that is, it's basically a trailer that it's really low to the ground. You can load a car on it. 
looks like the car is driving, but they're just on a trailer and they're just pretending to drive. But we had like these Model T cars. Dozen of them. There was tons. The insurance was super high on them because they're all these crazy expensive vintage cars. We had a rain system going all the way down. Like massive, like a couple of blocks. We closed down the whole town. Basically, this old school, like little city, this old downtown Main Street part of the city all shut down. What else did we do in that? We went into every single storefront and we put up window displays. Chris and his RT did, which you don't see any of that. I didn't even know about that because I wasn't on set that day. I was working on the B unit at the other house. Yeah. So I had no idea that that was that. Oh my gosh. It was a whole big undertaking. And then we built another set in the basement for another part of the hook. Remember the seat warmer bit? We we built a whole flat in this unfinished basement of this big house we were filming in. Oh man, that makes me want to puke just (laughs) thinking about it. Thanks, Josh. You're welcome. It was a learning experience. I think it was such a painful one for Josh and I. Josh and I have a lot of influence across a lot of the different projects at Harlem Brothers that we were both like, never again. So when we see stuff in scripts early on where we see something big, and we're like, nope, cut that stuff out. And that's the time it needs to be done. It shouldn't be done a week before production. It's very important as soon as you get that script to really do a script breakdown with the director, with the creative director, and really dial in not just messaging and everything else, but what are you going to spend your money on, right? Absolutely, because a small amount can go a long way if it's put towards the right Elements. element. Mm-hmm. And man, it can come back and bite you later on if you just don't have any budget left over. If you had to go do a reshoot or a pickup and you're like, oh man, I really wish we would have spent this extra $10,000 on a rain machine. <laughs> yeah, we've learned for sure. Let me ask you this. For pre-production, for those who are doing their own thing or other, maybe with smaller crews, can you speak a little bit, Josh? I mean, we talk about this a lot in planning and the cost to benefit ratio of a really solid hour in pre-production and how that compares to like dealing with the mistakes when you don't catch something. We call it, probably a lot of people call it, but really front-loading everything. The amount of time it takes to fix something that's either gone wrong or is about to go wrong. I don't know what the equation is, but it seems like any hour I put in beforehand saves me not just several, but there's a good chance that it saves a whole production if you do it the right way. Oh, yeah. I feel like it's like 10 to 1 at least. Easy. We've been in it before where you rush to find a location because you just feel like you need to get that location Mm -hmm. right away. You lock down that location without figuring out all the other logistics with regards to parking and how you're going to get equipment in there and what the air ventilation is and how insurance is. And before you know it, you've already said yes to this location and art's already planning everything. And there's an extra several thousand dollars in production expenses you weren't planning on from parking and permits and things you just didn't think about at that time. Yeah. Because you're so stoked about the location or you felt like you had to get it right away. So it's just kind of putting that little bit of extra legwork in beginning. If you would have checked and said, hey, what's my parking situation look like? Hey, what are my permits? All the other things that kind of center around any specific element. Because uh-huh. it's never just one thing. It's never. It's all the other things around it that's that are going like, to cost you. When I came in like producing stuff and like working more in depth with budgets, I was like, oh my gosh, why does everything cost so much? It's like death by a thousand cuts. Oh, we just need a house and the house is say $1,000. But then there's cleaning fees. You're going to need parking. There's an HOA. There could be... That doesn't let you park there. So you have to pay parking yep. for another place offsite. You can't eat lunch the there. Time. You got to have a remote caterer. You have to shuttle people over. You got to pay for a shuttle driver and a, a sprinter van. It's like, oh my gosh, this $1,000 a day house just turned into $2,500 a <laughs> Easy. day extra, you know? And those are the things you just kind of want to know before going into it. Say, hey, obviously here's the budget we have set aside for locations. Does that include Does everything? it fit everything in yeah. there? Yeah. On the counter side of that, when I've been on productions with you, Josh, where we've really done our due diligence ahead of time and we know where we're filming, we have our locations on lock, we know exactly what we're spending our money on. There's been a handful of shoots where we wrap early yep. and things are done on time. There's no stresses. And you're like, it's almost like you're like looking around like suspicious. You're like, 
did we forget something? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I remember feeling that days. on Next Vacay. Yeah. I feel like we missed something. And that one came under budget a little bit. We had just planned exhaustively on that particular shoot. When you feel like you've planned enough, plan more. There's always something that more than likely you haven't thought of. And that's one reason that I like to have, even though I've been doing this as long as I have with HB and other, even before Harmon Brothers, it's good to have multiple sets of eyes on things. Oh, for sure. Even if I feel like, hey, I've crossed my T's on everything with this permit with this contract with this location i like to have someone look over it just in case because yeah. again if we can catch it now it's going to save us tons and tons of time and money yeah for sure so, and like a big thing for those who are directing the commercials is to say if you're like a small shop the people you hire around you can do a, their job a lot better the more you articulate what your vision is and earlier so it yeah. gives them time to plan because there's been a lot of times where like things don't get communicated until the last minute and it ends up costing them a ton of money or a ton of time whereas if the vision would have been communicated much earlier, it's an easy fix if there's a day to prep on it or if they even are aware of it. But like oftentimes, like department heads, if they get caught flat-footed on set and like, hey, where's this prop? Or hey, we were going to do this shot. Like, did you have something prepared for that? And they're like, our crews and the least of people we hire are always such good sports and they always try and make it happen as best they possibly can. But it's such an unfair thing to like throw on them because if they're not aware of it, how can they prepare for it? And so it's just making sure your vision of what the creative is going to be is very clearly disseminated to all the people who need to hear it is critical. I assume everyone has their own way of producing and there's no right or wrong way. But one thing that I have to speak to that that does help a lot is I almost, I don't want to say insert myself, but I kind of make sure I'm involved in every conversation. Oh, for sure. So that information is disseminated down to the right people because if no one's there to catch it, someone else, it's not going to get caught. It's not going to be caught. Even if it seems like it's a conversation that's irrelevant to me, I want to make sure I'm there because there could be information that is discussed there that needs to be brought up to a third party. And there's a good chance it isn't brought to that third party if I'm not the one who does it. Yeah, so, exactly. You're kind of the gatekeeper for yeah. everything. And if you assume there's a conversation happening between two different department heads that like, oh, you guys should, we'll talk about this. Oftentimes, Josh just facilitates it and just sits in on the yep. meeting. Oftentimes, he doesn't have to contribute your thing, but Josh is like, I'm here to facilitate. And you I know guys do your thing. at some point, you know, you might worry that that's a waste of your time, but I promise you, <laughs> a waste of your time is two days before when you're trying to find a set piece that you didn't talk to your art about. And now yeah. you're running all exactly. over the city to find it. There's nothing worse than feeling, again, like flat-footed day before, two days before. Then it's the director, the producer, and the locations guy are all like scrambling to find something and it's always a subpar. It's always going to be subpar. It's, you know, a solution. A Occasionally, you might get lucky. We've had a couple where that's happened. More often than not, this could have been so much better if we just would have had a little bit more preparation. I'm making this sound like we suck at producing. I know. I feel so bad. When we actually get it right, it's so much better. This is me trying to give lessons, hard learned lessons. And this is where we've learned the most is from the, the early mistakes that we did make. In the last, I don't know, three, four years specifically, like we've really tightened up our production and we don't have crazy long days. We don't have crazy last minute requests. More often than not, we're really on top of it. And the other thing too is production is really fun. Like shooting days, that's like one thing that's been a little bit of a bummer for me as I haven't been on as many sets as I've moved into the role as CEO because being on set is so much fun, especially when it's ran well. Like whenever Josh is on a production that everything goes so smoothly, it's a fun time on set. It's a fun energy. You're part of the creative process in a cool way 
way. On the flip side, if it's not prepared, it can be so stressful. You walk into the room and you're like, whoa, who died? Yep. You know, like this is this is not a fun place. Maybe I'll I'm gonna stop in here, <laughs> get some crafty them a bounce. <laughs> you're gonna make mistakes producing. You're gonna yeah. make mistakes making commercials. You can make mistakes as a writer, as a director. It's just trying to find a way, one, to learn from those and two, to find a way to minimize those as you go. Yeah. One thing that I found that helps me a lot or that makes me like actually better than I am, surrounding myself with good people. Oh, for sure. Once you find people that you love to work with, people that you feel like you can completely trust, those are the people you want to surround yourself with. Yeah. And that goes back to kind of that conversation or the thing you just brought up with having just a set that just feels super toxic and run very poorly. If for some reason I made a mistake producing something and it wasn't going as well as it should, I know the people that I can bring on will be able to kind of bring everything back. But that's because I've been doing it so long. Yeah. To have a healthy, happy set like that, as good as, as much time as I can put into prep will definitely benefit it. But if you populate it with people who are not... Who are turds. Who are turds, yeah. <laughs> then you're just... It's a good and a bad thing. We found our crews of people that we really like to work with that are very good and deliver. They have a good time on set, but they know how to be professional and they get their crap done. It's anyone who works with us and that like is not professional and doesn't get their crap done. This is going to sound so mean, but we just don't work with them again. I mean, it's a situation where depending on... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Oftentimes we, we choose not to if we can find someone else who's better. I wasn't trying to be like, they're dead. We black mark them on the production side of things. Especially if we don't have to and there's good people that are available. Finding that good crew is critical to like having, especially tough, complex, long shoots that have a lot of components go smoothly. It's like you've got to have your crew on lock that knows what to do. And backups. Yeah, redundancy for sure. For example, when we shot Avast, if you remember. Oh yeah. Day one. We find out 10 minutes after call time that our hair and makeup artist isn't going to show up. She decided she's just not going to come. I feel really bad telling you the story. I won't go into any more than that. Yeah. But long story short, she just couldn't. Something came up, but there was no backup. And we had, I mean, we were on the clock at that point. We had closed off streets in downtown Salt Lake City. We had a full crew, film crew of probably about 30 that day. That's a big one. And we had very limited time frames in certain areas because the some of the businesses were opening up yep. at certain times and we had to be out of there. And one of them was a cafe in the very first location. And I think we had it till about, what was 11? Yeah, before their lunch rush yet. They're like, you need to be done. Your crew needs to be gone by 11. And it's like 8 o'clock and Josh and I are looking at each other like, what are we going to do? <laughs> and in situations like that, that I happened to know someone who was within a 15-minute drive, 10-minute drive of there, and she happened to be available that day and someone we trust. So it's just kind of having those relationships and also kind of thinking a couple steps ahead. And Cynthia, if you're listening, thank you so much. <laughs> she came in so clutch and saved the day in a big way. That was so clutch. And it really would have been really rough. We had a lot we were shooting that day. We were shooting like five different locations and it was a lot of the coverage of our B-roll for the entire whole campaign. Yeah. Let's go back and talk a little bit about post-production and how you help oversee post-production at Harm Brothers because you're still seeing everything through to the end on yeah. some level. There's some level that kind of gets handed over to a post-production supervisor. Let's talk through that a little bit for the audience so they can yeah. understand our workflow. From a producer standpoint, it's a little bit different at Harmon Brothers, like you mentioned. Once production is done, there is a handoff to both the creative director and the post-production supervisor who kind of, at that point, take the, the will and kind of steer everything to the finish line. Where I am at that point is making sure that our post-production supervisor and our creative director or director have the assets they need to get everything finished. So it's making sure that they have, okay, do we have our editors lined up and can they fit everything in this time? 
timeline? Do we have our motion graphic artist? Do we need VFX? Do we have a VFX artist? But it even goes a couple steps before in pre-production, I'll usually meet with the post-production supervisor and comb through the script and make sure we have allocated enough budget and time. Because what can easily happen is you'll go through production and you'll spend a little bit extra here and a little extra here and a little extra here. The only places that can come out of now is the post-production budget. <laughs> Sorry, post team. <laughs> so, and you don't want to do that to them. It's not fair. I try and meet with them as early as I can in that pre-production process, the post-supervisor and the creative director, just to make sure we're on the same page with, okay, who are we going to bring in? What red flags do we have? What kind of workflow and timeline are we looking at? What is our budget? Josh was saying just barely about bringing in VFX supervisors early on, even though it's technically a post position, like having pre-production work going into the post effects is huge. That was one of the reasons why we did so well on Next Vacay. Absolutely. is because we had a ton of pre-planning and visualization with the visual effects artist, Bryson, mm -hmm. as well as Brian Fugel, who was on that one, of like how we're going to shoot the plates for this. For context, concept was a traveling tree. Someone who's very deeply rooted, but because Next Vacay makes it so easy to travel, even a tree can travel. And so she was supposed to be in all these different locations. I think Josh's head nearly exploded when I handed him the script. Because <laughs> it's like, we're going to go down to Costa Rica. We're going to go down to Paris. We're we're going to go to... Where else did we uh, Hong Kong? I was in Hong Kong. And it was like, it's supposed to be like this really nice restaurant. And Josh is just like, what the freaking crap? <laughs> and so we kind of had to have a come to Jesus moment where we're like, let's sit down and let's talk about can this realistically possible? And we brought in Bryson, our visual effects lead here at Harm Brothers. And we kind of talked through like, how would you build this this way? How would we do this here? And we actually came out because we had those discussions ahead of time. And then we involved the art department, if you remember this. We had like him coordinating with the art department of what needs to be built practically, what could be a green screen, how will we shoot all the visual effects plates. We had enough planning ahead at time because right when Josh got that script, his alarm bells kind of went off. And so we went into like pre-production planning mode like crazy. But then it allowed us enough time to where we took John, one of our directors of photography, and Brian Fugel and flew them down to Puerto Rico actually and got all these plates that are perfectly measured to the height of the camera of where they should have been. So when Bryson was able to put those plates in the back of the green screen, like for the compositing, they matched perfectly. And then we had the plates on set so they could match all the framing. So we had like lighting references on set. We're getting a little bit in the weeds here, but it looked like clockwork. And the amount of time that you might be thinking, hey, flying crew out to Puerto Rico, that's crazy. That's not cheap. The amount of time that it saved our post budget absolutely was worth it. Yeah, because we had Bryson on set. Do you remember doing the live key? Because Bryson, he pulled in just like a cheap live key thing off of like a web webcam, put it into his computer to like check the rough composite. I remember looking at it with Josh and we were like, holy crap, this looks so good. I mean, there's some green spill and cleanup that needs to happen, but otherwise it's like, that tree's freaking in Puerto Rico, man. Even though that was post-work, if we would have really just kind of shot it assuming we knew how to shoot the footage for post, it would have been a nightmare. And we wouldn't have had the plates to match, we wouldn't have everything set up, and the post timeline would have been, for the turnaround, I remember it was very quick because he was trying to do it for springtime for people going out and traveling. He wanted to launch in like April. And I remember thinking if we would have not done all this and we had, I think on that one, I think it was like, it was pretty tight. I thought it was like a seven week turnaround on post. Or it was even tighter than that. It was tighter than that. I, I thought it was like, maybe it was five. I remember it was like close to one of the fastest we've ever done which was four weeks and we wanted to die. Five week turnaround on a, on a huge video that had like 50 different individual shorter cuts and all these visual effects composites. It would have literally been impossible mm -hmm. unless we would have put another $100,000 at that point. Yeah. Post. You don't have the time, so you have to throw the money you at it. You have to throw money at it. And it would have come out subpar. It would have been lacking in many ways. So moral of the story on this is post 
post-production starts in pre-production. Uh-huh, 100%. Everything starts as soon as you get the script, both in pre-production for planning the shoot, as well as post-production getting to the finish line. I don't need to go into more detail. It's like going to, you know I love food. I'm a foodie. Josh is a big foodie. Big foodie. Huge foodie. If you need great recommendations in yes, San Francisco, please. hit up Josh Dauphin. He's got the best. That French bakery you sent me to the other day was amazing. We got a, a harvest loaf of bread that we ate, and Allie's just like, holy crap, bread is not like does not taste like this in Utah. <laughs> I literally stuffed it in my carry-on, just the whole French loaf just went straight down. <laughs> when you're at a restaurant, you're not completely separating, okay, here's my line chefs, and here's how we're going to plate it. It's one dish. Yeah. And you have to approach production and pre-production the same way. It's one project. It's one product. It's one yeah. dish. So you can't think about them as two separate, three separate things, whether it's pre-production, production, post-production. Yeah. They all need to be married very tightly. Yeah. And when they are, it works way better. And it's way less painful. If anyone who's tried to do something ambitious and just hasn't had the reps or has maybe made some missteps in that sense where they've like kind of handed it off to someone else, it can be an unmitigated disaster. It can be so painful and just like impose, you, you just get in post hell where you're just, oh my gosh, how are we going to fix this. Weren't we going to make this more of an exciting, uplifting conversation? Yeah, now? we were. But when you do it right, you're like, dude, I don't drink, but let's go out for drinks. <laughs> <laughs> when you get it right, it's just, no matter how long you've been doing it, there's a rush. It's the best. It's the best. Typically too, like the client can feel how things are going. From Like when you go back to the client side and the advertising side, if they see the production going super smoothly, everything's falling and clicking into place, all your set is humming along, all the production looks great, and they can feel that. It makes a big difference for the client experience if they're seeing Oh, these guys have it unlocked. If it's ever a hot mess, it's not fun. But when it's right, it makes it so much better for the crew, so much better for you, as well as for the client. It's a much better experience. And they're going to have more confidence to work with you again in the future because it's like these guys know how to make stuff happen and make it look good. And we've done it many times where we're flying clients and they have no idea what to expect. Yeah. And they're just blown away by the level of professionalism and how bigger productions are, I think, as well. Yeah, which is crazy. Sometimes I'm like, well, they're paying for a pretty big campaign. Yeah. We're going to swing for the fences. We're not going to be like, oh, this is a couple of guys with a tripod and a boom. Be like, yeah, it'll look better in post, trust me. We got a really good colorist. <laughs> There's been so many clients from we flew at Olive to Next Vacay to, yeah, all of them. Yeah. They just get I mean, even like overwhelmed even, almost. Yeah. Shannon. It's huge. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Shannon, she would geek out. She yeah. would be so excited about it. So let's talk about it for a second, Josh. What are the biggest things that offer the biggest bang for your buck? And, and what I mean by that is like, what has the biggest either positive or negative impact on your end product of an ad, whether it's a good ad or a bad ad? It's tough. I mean, because there's so many elements that go into it and I don't want to undercut any of them because they're all very important. Writing is huge. Finding the right writing team and making sure that you have that script as flushed out and as on point as possible from your, your CTAs to your hook to your jokes, just having a great script at that point almost, I don't want to say guarantees a solid production, but it's a really oh, yeah. good push in the right direction. It's a lot easier for us to make a great product and coming out for some reason, say we skimped on writers and we tried to cut some expenses there and we come up with a subpar script. One of two things is going to happen. Either we're going to have to hire a bunch more writers to fix it, uh -huh. which is going to cost a ton of money. Yep. Or we're going to go into production and be like, oh crap, this isn't working. This isn't working. We either have to kind of rewrite it as we're going or... Which is never fun. Rewriting on set is the worst. Throwing money at a great creative concept and a great writing team. One, after that, above a director, above a great DP is talent. You can have a great script and if you cast the wrong individual, yeah, doesn't matter yeah. how good your script is. It's kind of like an ascending ladder. You have to have each rung to get to the next ladder. Yeah. And the, like the very bottom one is really solid writing. The next one is really great talent along with all the necessary stuff to make a good production. If you don't have good talent, even if you have the best production in the world, it's crap. But a good talent can actually resurrect a bad production. I think the third one in my mind is post-production nailing the edit and nailing the timing. But I think each one is interdependent on the other, right? 
great. If you have a great script, it's going to be easy to like make a good actor, make it look great. If you have a good actor, it's way easier to make the edit really, really funny. But if any one of those two preceding steps sucks or is lackluster, it's the worst. It's a ton of pain. I would agree 100% with you with first and foremost writing and then talent. Once you have those two, if you have a good editor, you can get something great. Those aren't areas you want to try and cut back on. I've had productions, again, I won't say what it is, but I've had one where we've had really good script. It was a huge production. It was a big budget thing with three or four day shoot. It was big crew. And we cast this actor for it. And when we got on set, he just crumbled. He lost his energy. He lost his confidence. We were really trying to like work with him. The way the first AD had scheduled it, it was four hours the first day of face-to-camera pitch. It was brutal because we stayed in the same location for four hours. And it was probably a huge misstep on my side for being like, yo, we got to get some other stuff where there's some more energy in this for this actor to get him comfortable. Did I produce this one? I think you did not. I think it might have been Mystery Box who did that one. I think Katie Schwartz produced that for us. Caitlin and I were working on the project and I remember both of us just looked at each other after like hour one and we're like, oh my gosh, (laughs) this is going to suck. We have three days of this and this guy is completely deflated and he looks like he got in a freaking bar fight and he is just trashed. Like he's just beaten to death already. He had just never done a lot of commercial work and so he wasn't used to not having the audience to feed off of for comedic energy because I watched like three or four of his sets and he was solid but he'd never been in a room where like people are trying to be professional and not laugh at him during the take. After the first couple of takes of a joke, it instantly becomes like less funny because everybody's heard it. No one's laughing afterwards after it says cut when the director gives feedback, it just goes silent. And I think it just sucked his will to live. He was just miserable because he'd never experienced... I mean, sometimes we'll run a line like 20, 30 times. And part of it may be the director figuring out, might be filling it out with the actor. Where does it punch really well? And if you're not used to that process, you're like, I am failing. I am not funny. This isn't working. And I think that's what was going through his head. It was. And I also think, and this is maybe a side tangent, what I would have done differently, and Keith over here, would, I'm pretty sure would agree with me, is you never want to start... Especially with a new actor going straight into the pitch. Especially with a comedian. There needs to be that interaction with other actors. Uh So we should have been starting with some of the comedic stuff first to get him warmed up, to get him in that right frame of mind, I would assume, instead of diving straight into it. This is a heavy technical product. So there was a lot of heavy messaging in it that was very science-based. So it was a lot of like heavy dialogue that he had to go through. And oftentimes we have first ADs who will schedule like fun things on the first day to kind of get set the energy for the whole shoot. Because that's the hard part is when you start off on a flat energy note for the day and it's not fun and it just kind of feels like like, oh boy, we're in for two or three days of this. That kind of sucks the wind out of everybody's sails. Then you have to work really hard to build the energy back up. So that's a tip for first ADs out there. Or and producers. You and should producers. Keep an eye on that. Yeah, make sure you're filming something at the front end that is high energy and kind of sets the tone for the whole shoot. And then leave the really awful stuff to the last day. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Intermix it. So it's not like all fun and then all terrible. Let's finish this up here with some tips for small teams or in-house production teams, maybe for brands of what tips would you give them from a producing standpoint? Say they're starting out, they're really only doing video on a small scale. What tips would you give them for getting the best bang for their buck or doing the most they possibly can with what they have? To go back, there's those three elements that you should really put your money into, Mm -hmm. like we talked about, which is the writing, getting the right talent, which you don't necessarily have to hire a casting director. You don't have that kind of money. Most big cities have several agencies. Uh Go directly to those agents and you can save money without going to a casting director. You can post on Facebook or other social media platforms. There are good ways to drum up. Is EcoCast free or no? EcoCast... I actually don't know. I don't know either. It might be a paid service, but it might be free to submit as an actor. I believe that's what it is. 
But there's a lot of services out there that are relatively cheap that you can get access to if you want to do nationwide casting mm-hmm. or you could even set a region. Absolutely. Say you're at a smaller uh, market. I mean, Utah's a relatively small market when compared to like Los Angeles, yeah. New York, Chicago. We have a lot tighter talent pool. We do. So we have to go outside of market often to really find great people. But there's resources you can go to, to those casting agencies or even like adjacent markets. I remember when I was at a previous agency, we cast out of Las Vegas because it was close enough that we could fly them up on a cheap regional flight. It wasn't a million dollars, but it was also like not trying to fly someone from New York. You're going to be paying $1,500 in just travel fees, right? Yeah. I, mean, I cut you off, Josh. No, you're good. I agree with you there as well. I mean, don't feel tied down. Let's say they're, they're doing something in the small Midwest city. Uh-huh. Say you can't even find someone local. There are so many great talented actors who are willing to come in. For, yeah. you know, we've brought in people who are like, no, I'll just come in. I'll do it as a day player or I'll do it as a local as what we'll do. If you don't have the money to find a casting director, just take the time to cast properly. If yeah. you put in the time, you'll find good talent. You have to sift through a lot. This isn't to knock any actors because acting is a very scary. Like, you have to be very oh, vulnerable yeah. to be an actor. But man, there are some... <laughs> I've gone through some eco casts with Josh before. Now he filters everything. <laughs> Thank goodness. But I remember like just being like, oh my gosh, these poor people. It would be like one in 20 were sufferable to watch more than like 15 seconds. <laughs> I say that knowing that I could never do it. Yeah, the- and it's like such a tough thing to do. And it's like such a hyper competitive thing to do. If you put in the hours though, you'll find those really great guys like Kevin and I's Ty. Never had worked with him before. He found him out of California. And he was awesome. A guy just could memorize anything. He took directions super well. But we just had to go through a ton of auditions to find him. Monday, I watched over a thousand. Oh my gosh. For Daniel Stark. I'd say that's where you put your money. I know equipment is sexy and I know everyone wants to talk about equipment. Cameras have come such a long way. Oh, crazy. You don't need to spend a ton of money on a fantastic camera to shoot these. You can go out and get a Blackmagic, get a Komodo. There's cameras that you can rent for under $150 a day that you can shoot this on and look fantastic that you could go to TV with. Oh, for sure. I mean, back in the day, like you had to have something that would do at least 422 color space. A lot of broadcast companies wouldn't even accept it. But now thanks to the internet and thanks to the democratization of the cameras themselves, it's so accessible. And it's crazy how good of an image you can get. And also like DaVinci is free. Editor and color correction software is free. And there's a lot of stuff like that that you can supplement the software that you need or even I was coming across enough to find it and share it with you, Shane. There was a stock footage website I came across last night that was free. Free? Yeah. It was free. How? I know. That sounds fake. I think it's for like the first 30 days of track, but still. <laughs> say you have this great script you have to shoot and there's a ton of different elements in there that you just don't have time to do. Dude, stock footage. Yeah. The caliber of it has gotten so good. When I first started in production 12 years ago now, you couldn't license songs at all. Like it was cost prohibitive. It was so hard. Like trying to find sound effects libraries was very expensive. Things like Envato Elements, you pay $16 a month or Audio Blocks. All those types of services are only like a handful of dollars a month. And you have access to like 100000 plus songs, crazy amounts of sound effects, which even just a few short years ago, that was out of reach. If you're scrappy and you're smart about how you put your stuff together, you can make it look a thousand times better than it was just a few years ago. Yeah, I was talking to a producer buddy of mine who just did a 30-second spot for TV. And I won't say too much, but literally they shot one product shot. They shot... (laughs) <laughs> and it's about five seconds and the remaining 25 seconds is all stock footage. No, it is not. Yeah, it's all stock footage. No compositing or anything like that. It's just like... No, and it looks great. You could never tell. <laughs> it looks fantastic. I would even say in our big productions, we still use stock elements. For instance, when we did the last Kodiak Cakes shoot, there was a shot where it was a cutaway, which cutaways is a really good place to use it because cutaways are very expensive when you're filming and you go to a totally different location for a joke or a beat. It was a joke about Fluffy wanting to eat egos, And he was like, no boy, I don't even let the raccoons eat these. And then we did a quick cutaway to like a raccoon. We composited the Eggo box in, but the raccoon's like, 
<laughs> we got a stock footage shot from like a zoo that someone had put in there of a raccoon on a tree that looks up a camera and flashes his teeth. And it was like perfect. So it's like even in a huge commercial for a big brand like Kodiak, we had stock footage that we were able to put in there and save us from production from trying to go find an animal wrangler and try and get a raccoon to look at the camera. You know what I mean? Again, it all the way comes back to preparation. Yeah, pre-production. If you didn't prepare it and plan on that, you don't know there's another option. Yeah. Or you, you haven't given yourself enough time maybe to even look for it. Yeah. So you're finding a subpar or you're just completely going to nix that shot because you can't get it. But that would be in a situation where if I was like, Josh, we need a raccoon wrangler. You would have been like, really? Maybe we should look at alternative options. Have we looked at stock? And then what would have happened is that we... Can we paint a cat? And Mace would have gone and looked at stock footage for can we paint a cat? <laughs> <laughs> is that a thing? <laughs> That's, I didn't even think about that option. See, Josh should have brought <laughs> that up earlier. When we had that conversation, Josh would have just said, let's look at all these options and we would have found it, which I think is what we actually did. Yeah. We had that in pre-production conversation. I'm like, I think we got something we can work. And then we had that. So we didn't do a raccoon because I think at one point we were actually talking about doing that because we have connections with so many animal wranglers. But because we did that ahead of time, we didn't have to and it saved us a ton of money. Moral of the story is pre-production is king, right? Absolutely king. Other than that, I mean... It's fun to have big sets, which we a lot of the times do not always. Yeah. It's not always needed. I feel like a lot of times that we can justify it is we have so much to shoot in such a small amount of time that having more hands allows us to do that. But if you have all the time in the world, say, hey, it's a small script and budget's tight, but we have all the time in the world, you can shoot some great stuff with a team of three to four people. Totally. You can't move fast. You can get a lot of coverage. That becomes a question of, you know, it's a time money thing. Do we have the time or the money? Exactly. Wise words from Mr. Josh Stoffer. <laughs> I don't know how wise they are, but... They are wise. I'm vouching for Josh that it is wise. So yeah, I kind of summarize this up, guys, and kind of circle back on some of the things we talked about. Pre-production is king. And if you spend an hour in pre-production, this is me saying my opinion on this. A solid hour in pre-production can save 10 hours of pain and misery in post. And then just making sure you're always working with your producer and making sure your costs are in check and like trying to have creative solutions that can reduce costs it often helps you focus in more on the things that are really important to the ad and really important to the campaign and kind of drop a lot of the fluff that's not going to really move the needle. And then biggest bang for your buck, we'll summarize this. We said writing first and foremost, then talent, uh, getting the right actor to make that writing work, getting a good editor to really make that footage sing. Is that a fair summary, Josh? Absolutely. And then just approach everything as one organic piece. Oh, it's not right. separate that was pre production, good. production, and post. It is one living organic unit. Unit. <laughs> <laughs> Well, on that note, Josh, I really appreciate the time. This has been really cool to have you on. We don't really talk about the production side of our business so much. We've become quite a capable production house in and of ourselves. You're a lot to thank for that. And I appreciate you sharing your time and your kind of your insights into that. And it's been a pleasure, man. It's been fun. Sweet. I'll do it again in two years, man. <laughs> Until next time. Tired of playing catch up on your marketing approach? Plan your whole year of ad content with our video strategy in a day. The Harmon Brothers are known for their ad work with Lumi, Purple, and Skull Shaver. And now we're offering a 20 minute video that helps you strategize your best profit pushing ad research, messaging, and testing for free. Because a win for great businesses is a win for all of us. Go to harmonbrothers.com forward slash video strategy to save future you a lot of stress with no pitch and nothing to buy.